Uh, well, friends, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I hate long-distance flights. Uh, as you know, I recently flew to Hawaii um, due to the generosity of uh, some family members who uh, paid for the trip. But uh, the thing I dreaded most was the 10-hour flight uh, to Hawaii. Uh, you know, the seats are cramped and uncomfortable in economy class. Uh, you have children kicking the back of your seat in the middle of the night as you're trying to sleep. Uh, you experience turbulence and motion sickness. Uh, it's simply awful uh, going on long flights. Uh, but here's the thing. The thing that got me through was thinking about what lo- uh, lay in the end. You know, the sandy beaches, the summer weather, the cool waters, the prospect of a week on an island paradise. Uh, sounds fantastic, doesn't it? And it was. And I want to suggest that similarly, uh, as we've already heard from Monique's uh, kids' talk, today's passage in God's Word encourages us to think about what lies in the end. Uh, Last week, uh, Joe did a great job of taking us through chapters 12 uh, and 13 of Revelation. If you missed that sermon, can I encourage you to um, perhaps catch up? Um, uh, You can listen to it on podcast, and uh, I I think I've uh, written down the the details of how you can access that uh, in the bulletins. Um, But last week, we saw God showing us the reality of what is going on behind the scenes in our world. Uh, We saw that God's enemy and the enemy of his people is Satan himself. Uh, We saw that this enemy has been comprehensively defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross. And yet we saw that although Satan has been defeated, he has not been destroyed yet, and therefore he is desperate to harm and persecute God's people. Satan will use earthly rulers and authorities, uh, or in the picture language of Revelation, the, 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 the beasts, in order to pursue and to persecute Christian people. Uh, further, Satan will use false religion to deceive many, to compromise their worship of God, either through uh, worshipping other gods or through sexual immorality. This is the reality of, uh, uh, that God describes. And for those who have eyes to see, it is going on even as we speak. And so, friends, last week's passage and this week's passage, which really form one big unit in the book of Revelation, is really a call to endure this kind of persecution and suffering. Uh, If you turn back to chapter 13, verse 10, chapter 13, verse 10, uh, you can see there that the apostle says towards the end of that verse, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Uh, Or if you flip over to chapter 14, verse 12, chapter 14, verse 12, He says there again, here is a call for the endurance of the saints and those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. But how is it that Christians like you and me can endure till the end? How can we keep going this 
despite the opposition that we face in this world? How can we withstand the temptation to worship other things and compromise our faith, which is so easy to do? Well, the big point of today's passage is that we can endure by understanding the end, what comes at the end. For what we see in today's picture is a picture of what will happen at the end of human history. Uh, Now, the first scene uh, that you can see there in chapter 14 uh, is that of the Lamb and the 144,000. Uh, We already know who the Lamb is, uh, don't we? Uh, We saw last week that the Lamb is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his blood has won the great victory over the dragon Satan, who accuses God's people. Um, In my notes, I I have, but who are the 144,000 who are with him? Um, I think Monique stole a bit of my thunder today uh, by identifying who they are. But um, I just want to point out that Uh, People like the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that the 144,000 is the literal number of those who belong to the Jehovah's Witness faith uh, who will make it to heaven at the end of human history. However, uh, we've seen, haven't we, that the book of Revelation uh, is written by the Apostle John in the apocalyptic genre which is a a highly symbolic kind of genre. And so uh, we have to just be sensitive to the parts of Revelation which are meant to be understood symbolically. And so uh, we've already been told by Monique that uh, 12 is the number of completeness. And so you have 12 tribes of Israel, which is the complete number of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, You have 12 apostles who represent the new Israel in the New Testament. Uh, 1,000 in Revelation represents just a large number. And so 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000, which symbolizes the complete people of God uh, across human history. Now, you can see that this is the case in how the 144,000 are described in our passage. Uh, At the end of verse 3, notice that they are the redeemed. They are the ones who are redeemed from the earth. Uh, To redeem something is to purchase back something that is yours. And so, uh, for example, if I am in need of money, um, I can go down to cash converters and uh, I can give them my watch, and they will give me, oh, I don't know, $100 for it if I'm lucky. Um, but then if I want my watch back, uh, what I need to do is go back to cash converters, uh, give them $100, and they will give me back what belongs to me. Uh, that's the meaning of redemption. And so the 144,000 are the ones who have been redeemed or purchased back by God, uh, by the blood of the Lamb, in order to belong to him. Uh, The purchase price was the blood uh, that Jesus shed on the cross. And if you are a Christian person, if you are part of the redeemed, then he has now set you free from your previous owner who had enslaved you to sin and death. If you are a Christian person, you have been redeemed to now belong to Christ. 
But further, notice that the 144,000 there are those who are pure. Uh, in verse 4, they are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Uh, now, this doesn't mean, of course, that no married men will end up in heaven. For again, this is highly symbolic writing. Uh, it's speaking about uh, spiritual faithfulness. In other words, the 144,000 are the ones who have remained faithful by not worshipping the beast, but remaining loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who later, incidentally, is described as the husband of God's people. And finally, the 144,000 are those who have offered themselves as sacrifices to serve God and the Lamb. Uh, in verse 4, you can see there that they are described as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. Uh, in Israel, the first fruits of the harvest uh, was the fruit that was given to God uh, as a sign of, of devotion. And so here, the 144,000 are themselves uh, the first fruits who offer themselves to God to serve Him and His purposes in this world. And so the 144,000 are, as Monique mentioned, the redeemed people of God. They are people like you and me. Uh, if we are Christian people. But did you notice where the 144,000 are and what they are doing? Uh, in verse 1, they are in Mount Zion, which is heaven itself. For notice that the Lamb is standing there, and we saw last week, didn't we, that the Lamb is the one who has been caught up to heaven to rule the nations. It happened when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended uh, to heaven to rule all things. And what are they doing? Well, in verse 3, they are singing a new song that only they can sing. In other words, this is a song of great joy because they have been redeemed by the Lamb and now belong to Him in heaven. You see, friends, this is the glorious end that awaits God's people like you and me. Uh, it's a picture of God's people in God's place, enjoying God's goodness for the rest of eternity. And uh, God gives us this extraordinary picture of the end so that you and I might keep on enduring in the Christian life, not giving up, but keep on uh, serving and being loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, well, friends, uh, the next vision that God sees in our passage is a scene with three angels. Uh, who are these three angels? Uh, it's interesting that at the funeral of Martin Luther, who um, some of you might know uh, kick-started the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, uh, at his funeral, his friend preached from this very passage and identified Luther as the first angel. Now, uh, I think it would be wrong to suggest that the Apostle John had Martin Luther specifically in mind uh, when he penned these words. But I think the angels are meant to represent those like Martin Luther who proclaim the gospel, who proclaim the good news of, uh, of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's speaking about ordinary Christians who speak the gospel. For you may have noticed that in verse 5, it is the 144,000 
who have the gospel truth on their mouths. Notice that they proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. Uh, In verse 6, we are told that they proclaim the eternal gospel to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, Back in verse 3, the people of God were those who had been redeemed from the earth. And so those who dwell on the earth are those who are uh, unbelievers, those who do not belong to the land. In other words, this is a picture of the proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers before the end of human history comes. And notice the message that they preach here. Uh, In verse 7, the message is, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Or come down with me to verse 8, where the message is, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, who we will later see represents uh, the godless cities of this world. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Uh, Or down in verse 9, the message is, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now friends, I wonder whether you find uh, this proclamation of the gospel in this passage a little bit strange. Do you find it strange? Uh, Some of us might find it strange because we are used to thinking about the gospel as a positive message that is full of promise. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's a message of promise for those who believe. And that is true. But we very rarely reflect on the negative side of the gospel, which says that if you do not turn from your worship of creation and turn to worship your creator, who is the true and living God, then you will be judged by God in hell. He created you, and so if you do not turn to him and continue to reject him and rebel against him in your life, then he has every right to judge you. In other words, the gospel is not only a promise, but it is also a sober warning for those who do not believe. And that is the gospel that is being proclaimed here, isn't it? Friends, it is an offensive thing to speak about hell, isn't it? It offends the world, as we are seeing with the case of Israel Falau, who spoke of hell in his private Instagram post as he called on people to repent and to turn to God in faith. 
but it is also offensive to many who claim to be Christians. Uh, Some of you might be offended here about the idea of hell that awaits those who do not worship the God of the Bible. Uh, Some in our world might say, you know, you evangelical Christians believe in the God of the Old Testament, but I'd prefer to believe in the God of the New Testament, who is a God of love, not a God of wrath. But friends, Revelation 14 is in the New Testament. And Jesus in the New Testament speaks about the reality of hell more than any other person. In Matthew's Gospel, it is Jesus who says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. Uh, Others might try and diminish what the Bible says about hell by teaching things like annihilation. Uh, This is the idea that those who do not belong to Christ will simply uh, cease to exist rather than suffer eternal punishment in hell. But you can see there in verse 11 that hell is described as a place of torment that lasts forever and ever. Still, others will say that the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. You know, we might feel this from time to time, if we're honest. That the punishment of hell does not seem to fit the crime. But those who think like this have yet to understand how offensive the crime itself is before God. They have yet to understand themselves and their sin and how offensive it is to God for puny members of creation to shake our puny fists at God and reject him and rebel against him in our lives. You see, friends, at the end of the day, the real question is not, is it offensive, but is it true? For if it is true, proclaiming this gospel and warning unbelievers, urging them to turn to God before the end, is the most loving thing that you and I can do as Christian people. Uh, some of you will know of uh, Penn Gillette, uh, who is uh, one half of the comedy duo called Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn Gillette is also an atheist who doesn't believe in the existence of God. Uh, but a few years ago, um, he spoke of a time when a Christian man came up to him and began to uh, speak the gospel to him. Uh, warning him of hell. Now, um, Penn says, many people will say this is unloving. You know, many people will say this is offensive. Many people will say, well, why don't you just keep your religion to yourself? Uh, but listen to what uh, Pendulet himself says um, in a, a recorded message. He says this, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which is, Uh, seeking the conversion of others through the the gospel. Uh, I don't respect that at all, he says. If you believe there is a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, and you think it's not worth telling them this because it would make it, well, socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, you know, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself, 
How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize, he says. How much do you need to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believe without a shadow of doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down at you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Here's an atheist who understands that if hell is real, then speaking the gospel is not an act of hate, but an act of love. And I wonder whether you and I understand this as clearly as he does. But friends, uh, did you notice that the Apostle John here speaks of God's judgment and hell not to motivate Christians to proclaim the gospel, but to motivate Christians to endure and not give up in the Christian life. Uh, You can see it in the very next verse, in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. But how does this work? How is God's judgment a motivation for Christians to enjoy in the Christian life? Uh, When was the last time you or I encouraged our Christian friends to to endure in their Christian life by speaking about hell. Um, It's not something we do very often, is it? Uh, Well, I think that the reason why we find this idea strange is because, by and large, we have not been very persecuted for our faith in the way that many Christians around the world are are persecuted. For the reality is that in many parts of the world, Christians face severe persecution and opposition and even death for remaining loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In North Korea, if they find out that you are a Christian, then they will send you to a labor camp and you may see four generations of your family being systematically exterminated as they seek to stamp out Christian belief from your family. If you are a Christian in Nigeria, you might answer the door one day and find armed militia, uh, Muslim militia, who will abduct your daughters and subject them to unimaginable abuse. It's happened. It's happening. If you are a Christian in Afghanistan, It is quite possible that if they find out that you are a Christian person, they will burn down your house and put you in a mental institution saying that you are insane. You see, for these Christian brothers and sisters, the news of God's judgment is a cause for hope and rejoicing as it should be for us. It is an encouragement to keep on enduring persecution even to the point of death. For in the end, God will right these wrongs and God's people will finally be given rest. And that's why John writes in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so, friends, uh, our passage this morning ends with a picture of what the end will look like. 
And you can see there that the picture that John is given is that of a huge harvest. It's an appropriate picture, isn't it? Because the harvest happens at the end of the fruit season. This is a picture of what will happen in the end. Notice that on, on the one hand, Jesus will gather his people. In verse 14, you see uh, the Son of Man, who is Jesus. He has a golden crown on his head, symbolizing his rule over all things. He has a sharp sickle in his hand, which is a wooden handle with a long, sharp blade at the end, which was used to cut down and harvest the fruit uh, or the crops. And he is instructed by another angel to put in the sickle and harvest the crop from the earth. Uh, Now, you might be a little bit surprised here that Jesus is taking instructions from another angel. But notice that the angel comes from the temple itself. And so it's likely that the angel is simply carrying a message that God himself has, has announced that the time for harvesting has come. Uh, we are not told what is being harvested here, but given that the Son of Man uh, is, is an image from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament of the one who receives the kingdom from God, uh, I think Jesus here is harvesting, at the end of time, the ones who belong to him. However, on the other hand, you'll see that we have this awful picture of another harvest. In verse 17, we see another angel with a great big sickle. We see him being instructed by still another angel to put in the sickle and harvest grapes from the earth. And so the angel swings his sickle. The grapes are harvested. And they are thrown into huge vats where they are trodden on by God himself. The idea of God treading on grapes is an image taken from the Old Testament, which we read in Joel 3, of God's judgment on those who do not worship him. And here we see the awful image of the blood of those who are trodden on flowing from the vats for hundreds of kilometers. Now, friends, it's an awful, awful image, isn't it? And I think it's quite right that our mind recoils in horror as we think about family and friends and those we love who do not worship God, the God of the Bible, and as we hear about the end that God speaks about here. Perhaps it's particularly difficult for those of us who have lost loved ones, who have as far as we know, have not professed their faith in Jesus. However, I think it's also right to balance this with what we see right at the end of our passage this morning, which is the singing of God's people. For on that day, we as God's people will be able to say in a profound way, in a way that perhaps we cannot fathom now, that all of God's deeds are great and amazing. We'll be able to say that his ways are true and just. We'll be able to rejoice in his holiness and righteousness, and so we will sing.
uh, well, friends, uh, living in this world as Christian people is a difficult thing, isn't it? Uh, like sitting on a long-distance flight, it's uncomfortable and it's painful. We may feel like we are on the losing team often as we face opposition uh, from rulers, from the cultural powers of this world. Uh, we may face temptation from Satan himself who tries to deceive us into compromising our faith in the worship of idols and immorality. But God's word gives us a clear picture of the end. The end will be glorious for the people of God who belong to the Lamb, for they will rejoice and find rest in the heavenly Mount Zion for all of eternity. The end will be catastrophic for those who do not turn from their worship of the beast and the powers of this world and turn to worship God and the Lamb, for they will face the eternal wrath and torment of God forever. And so here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Here is a call not to give up in your Christian life. Here is a call to keep on going in your worship of God and of the Lamb who loves you and died for you and whom you will share in victory on the last day. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word reveals to us the things that must soon take place. Uh, Father, we thank you for the comfort of knowing that because of Christ, we who have been redeemed by his blood have the promise of a glorious future. And we thank you also that you will judge this world and put to right uh, all evil and all wrong in this world. Uh, Father, we thank you that your word speaks the truth. And so we pray that even though we may find hearing about judgment and hell, and indeed speaking about judgment and hell to be uncomfortable, and even though the world might find it offensive, we pray that you would help us to see the rightness of your judgment and help us to live our lives in the light of what is to come. And help us to be the people who, in love, warn others so that they might turn to Christ before that last day. And we pray that you would help us to endure in the Christian life, not only in fair weather, but particularly when we face opposition and temptation and difficulties in the Christian life. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, who is victorious. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.